We are in our series titled Wandering from Wisdom. We've traveled with the Israelites as they have came out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and are now at Mount Sinai. And last week, Pastor John explained how God's law is like a, a, a guardrail for our lives to keep us safe from harm, not to ruin our fun. But what happens when you blow right through that guardrail? Today we're going to see a very tragic example of how sin takes us far from God. And it was one of Israel's uh, just darkest moments in their history. You know, it's got to be tough to be God. Does that thought shock you? It's tough to be God. How do I know? Well, it's tough to be a parent. Just ask her, right? Kids, do you ever make your mom look like this? No, of course not. You're Anderson Hill's kids. You would never do that, right? But seriously, we as parents could tell of stories of, of sleepless nights as we raise our kids. And the toughest times are when our children make poor decisions. And it can be heartbreaking. We pray desperately for our kids to be on the right path and stay on that right path. Amen? And God is like a perfect parent. And that was Jesus' favorite title for God. Abba, Daddy. Now, if you think if it's tough rearing children, just think about raising up and raising a nation to follow you and your ways. It's tough to be God. Listen to God's anger with Israel. Exodus 32, 9 through 10. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. Now why did God say such a thing to Moses? Well, the Israelites, they got impatient. In chapter 20, they heard God verbally give the Ten Commandments, and then later Moses would come down from the mountain with the stone tablets. Before that, God gave tons of specific instructions about the tabernacle and items used for worship and how to worship Him very specifically as you read in those chapters as you make your way toward chapter 32. The Bible tells us that Moses was on Mount Sinai for uh, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Israelites, they couldn't see him. So they just got discouraged. They got scared. The Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. And that can be tough. That can be really tough to do. We get impatient. We get crabby when our prayers don't get answered. It's difficult to wait. It's difficult to be in that waiting of what we want. And the Israelites, they felt this way as they waited for Moses, and they did a terrible thing as a result. What did they do? Let's look in Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses was, was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Wait. Whoa, time out. You were led out of slavery through the Red Sea. You're eating manna from heaven every day. And you're ready to call it quits because Moses is slow. 
Are you kidding me? Well, thank God that Moses left Aaron in charge. (laughs) Surely he has the backbone to confront this nonsense. Not. Verses 2 through 4a, it says, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your son, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast into shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Oh, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. Do you fall down the steps and you bonk your head, man? This golden calf. Are you serious? It's a total violation of the first two commandments. And they just got these commandments. And it gets worse. 4b, it says, Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. No, they're not. This is a piece of gold. It's dead. You didn't follow a golden ribeye steak out of the Red Sea. That was the living God who parted the Red Sea. But the Egyptian religion, the cows were, they symbolized power and fertility. Maybe the people were influenced by their past memories in Egypt. Regardless, Aaron, he starts to go into damage control. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Aaron says, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. Don't get too carried away here. Let's slide this calf to the back of the stage. And remember, it's not about the calf. We're going to worship God. On one hand, that's commendable. He wants to draw the people's attention back to God. But on the other hand, Aaron plays into the original lie of sin. It's that lie that says you can have it both ways. Remember what Satan said to Eve, Genesis 3, 4 through 5? You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, you can have it all, Eve, he tells her. You can live in this beautiful garden and you can be like God too. Have you ever fallen for that? Well, you can be trusted Even with those little lies, you can cheat as long as you don't get caught. You can take a few extra pills. You won't get addicted. Hey, God's just trying to wreck your fun. Come on, live a little. And we hear that lie that comes from sin. Now, my friends, that's how it works. Sin deceives us. Sin deceives us. It's like the Venus flytrap. An attractive flower made with a sweet scent to bugs, which actually is really uh, attracting so the bugs can become lunch. (laughs) It looks good, but it's deadly if you are a fly. And sin may look attractive, but its attraction is deceptive. And the Israelites, they felt insecure and a fear of abandonment. And while Moses was away, they got caught in that fly trap. Bam! Idolatry comes. Sin comes. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Ouch. Isn't that so true? It's a little act of disobedience, a little idol, a little whatever it is it is. 
In our pride, we assume that we can handle it. We try to say yes to sin and yes to the Lord at the same time, and we try to walk that fence, don't we? Without falling on one side or the other. And like Aaron, we want it all to fit together, but that's not how sin works, my friends. Sin seeks, sinks deep roots into your heart. It takes you farther than you want to go. And look what happened to the Israelites. Exodus 32.6, it says, So the next day the people rose early. They sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So they offered sacrifices to the Lord while the golden calf is still standing there. And then they immediately started practicing a pagan religion. It's Israelites gone wild here, partying in sinful ways. You see, sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. Exodus 32, 7 through 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a cow, a calf. They have bowed down to it. They have sacrificed to it. They have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Did you catch that? Your people, Moses. But if I were Moses, I would have quickly quoted Exodus 3, 7a. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Hold on, God. How did it suddenly become my people? Just because they're doing bad things. Parents, don't you do this too, right? You get home from work and your spouse said, you wouldn't believe what your son did today, right? You've heard that. Spouse never follows that with, oh, your son got an A on the math test. Nope, it's not. It's, it's, it's always like your son accidentally ate the whole bag of Oreos, wrecked the neighbor's bike into the cat, and peed on every toilet seat in the house. Your son did that. Do something about him. But seriously, God is angry. Like we read earlier, God is ready to destroy them. This shows us something about sin that people often misunderstand. Sin separates us from God. Now, this passage doesn't mean that God wants to destroy us every time we sin. God judges sin, but God is also full of mercy, grace, and love. It's both and, not either or. And God could justify, justifiably destroy us for sin, but God chooses not because of his great mercy for us, for you and for me. God always desires to see his beloved children return to him and be restored into that relationship with joyful obedience. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 in the fold and goes after the lost sheep. He's the housewife that sweeps every corner of the house, turning over every nook and cranny looking for that lost coin. And when she finds it, she rejoices. It's God, the father, who watches over the horizon for his son to return down that driveway. And what does God do? Run to him, to embrace him, forgive him when he arrives. So fellow sinners, there's hope for you and for me. Have you wandered off from the flock? Do you feel some distance between 
you and God. Maybe it's getting greater and greater. The good news is that Jesus died so that that chasm can be crossed. Died so that we don't have to pay the price for our sins. The price we could never pay. And when we sin, we can be forgiven because of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That wrath of God, that, that let's destroy them and start over thing, good news, it's all been satisfied when Jesus came and took our sins on the cross and paid full price. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And we can come back to God. But before Jesus paid the price, the people were subject to God's judgment. So Moses shifts into lawyer mode. He literally argued with God. He said, look, if you destroy these people, everyone will think that you brought them out there, just brought them out here just to destroy them. Remember your covenant with the ancestors, God? And God relents. And he sends Moses back down to deal with the people Well, when Moses sees the people engaged in idol worship and sin, he's so angry that he throws these two, these brand new Ten Commandment tablets that God makes and he breaks them. And he finds the leader at the time of the great atrocity, his brother Aaron. Exodus 32, 21 through 24, he says, he, Moses, said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you you led them into such a great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Come on, man. You hear that? This is simultaneously hilarious and tragic. Aaron would make a great politician, wouldn't he? He passes the buck quicker than you can imagine. You see, sin makes excuses, my friends. It started in the garden. Remember what Adam said? He said, the woman you put me here with gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Does that sound familiar? The first man caught in the first sin turns to blame his wife. He extends the blame to God as well. He implies that he would have remained innocent if God hadn't put him there with Eden or Eve in the Garden of Eden. Aaron was the same way. These people did it, Moses. You see, there are three responses to sin. The first one is blame. Blame shifting with Aaron in the Garden continues today. Our proud hearts send us desperately looking for someone else. Our spouse, our sibling, our parent, our boss, our coworker, our pastor, our friend, or God himself. God desires that we search our hearts. We search our hearts to where we see that we are responsible. It's me. It's me, Lord. We raise the hand. We admit that we are wrong. Making excuses is arrogant and foolish. It's a proud way of trying to justify our actions and to pacify our guilty conscience. It keeps us from humbling ourselves before the Lord. Folks, humble pie is so, so nutritious. It is. It's nutritious 
for our soul. The second thing is shame. It's shame. We keep screwing up and committing the same sin and we feel just so ashamed of ourselves. We think God must be ready to give up on us and we give up on ourselves. We wallow in in shame and sadness. Do you remember the first evidence that something was wrong when Adam and Eve sinned? Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Shame came, just like it does for us, and God came looking for them, seeking connection, but Adam and Eve, they started to create distance. They chose to deal with their shame by running and hiding from God. Guilt and shame caused by sin are some of the biggest enemies to intimacy with God. It is. That intimacy that God so desires to have with you and with me. I've done it. (laughs) I have. And I know you probably have done it too. If we can't blame someone else for our sin, we sit in shame, detaching and avoiding relationships with God. And it also creates distance with others. And rather than seeking forgiveness or, or resolution or restoration, shame is just that unproductive response to our guilt. It prevents us from experiencing intimacy that God so desperately wants to have with us. And what happens? We stop going to church. We stop engaging Christian friends in conversation. We stop reading the Bible. We stop praying. We pull away. But understand that you can't can't hide from this God who desires that connection with you. He will call out to you even in the deepest pits of shame and regret. He loves you too much for anything less, my friends. What's causing shame for you today? And how does shame, how has shame been distancing you from God? So those are two bad responses, but there's hope. The third one is life-giving. But before I tell you about it, I want to explain the reason why uh, it is so important. As I look at our world, and I even see it in, our, in the Church of America, I'm concerned because we often downplay the magnitude and harm of sin. We tend to sanitize sin. Our culture tells us that it isn't a big deal. But the story shows us that it is. It really is. Why? Because sin breaks God's heart. I mean that. It actually breaks God's heart. Because when you love someone, it hurts when they mistreat you. Think about the golden calf for just a minute. Aaron took this rebellious Israelites, he took their gold jewelry, he melted it down, and he made that stupid calf. And do you remember where that gold came from? It was Egyptian gold. It was given to the Israelites because they, as they left, because they were so, the Egyptians were so devastated by the plagues that God used to wreck evil Pharaoh's pride These were necklaces and earrings and bracelets that they wore as they walked through the Red Sea and they marveled at God's 
protection. Now I'm going to make a very highly controversial statement, so get ready to be offended. Jewelry is a want, not a need. Oh, I'm in dangerous territory, am I? Ain't, ain't I? Why, why pick a fight with the ladies? Well, it's not just the ladies, right? It's this guy too. Who would disagree with me on that? But seriously, think about a dad giving a necklace, a necklace to his sweet little daughter. He doesn't do it because she needs that to survive. He does it out of an act of love. And when she puts it on, she knows her daddy loves her and is so proud of her. And it's a constant reminder that she's his beloved daughter. I often wondered why God inspired the Egyptians to give Israelites their jewelry. I think this is why. It was a reminder that the Almighty Daddy loves them and is saving them. And the Egyptian bling was an unneeded blessing that just reminded them of how how good God had been to them. So imagine how much it hurt God's heart. When they took that sign, those tokens of love, and threw them into a furnace and made a a fake piece of garbage idol and then bowed down to worship it. God's people horrifically proclaiming, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Think about that. Just the irony. No. They had just watched God perform miracle after miracle on their behalf. And now they're bowing down to a golden calf they set up in the place of God. They took a sign of God's goodness and they turned it into a false, uh, phony God and bowed down before it. This is the epitome of sin. We take the goodness of God, we twist it, and we turn it into something that breaks God's heart. God gives us bodies that are temples of the Holy Spirit And sometimes we trashed our bodies instead of caring for them. God gives us this beautiful creation and we fail to take care of it. God gives us money and we ignore the poor or or giving unto others for their help. And God entrusts us with relationship with his children and sometimes we're mean or abusive or hurtful to them. You see, sin does indeed break God's heart, my friends. And I don't want to do that. That's exactly why the third thing is a life-giving thing, and it's repentance. It's repentance. Repentance is the acknowledgement that God is right, and we are wrong, and we have to turn and come back. We have to stop going in that direction, and we have to turn and come back to God. And that's what repentance is all about. And we have to recognize that that voice that's calling us to come back is true and can be trusted And can help get us out of this shame and this guilt and deep impact of sin. You know, if sin is first and foremost a deviated heart, then the acknowledgement of of that must also begin deep within the heart. And that's what happens in the heart of repentance. We need to say, God, I am broken. I have sinned against you and only you. I'm lost. I'm trapped. I'm tired of the evil that is within me and the evil consequences that are happening in my life. It seems to to happen time and time again. These old compulsions continue to reign, God. I need to come back with you because I'm tired of the sin and the guilt. And I'm tired of making excuses. Repentance is an expression of a desire to be done. 
to be over it and to understand how pervasive and deceptive and evil and wicked sin is and how much that sin desires to hold on to our lives in a negative way. And when we repent, there is hope. There is always restoration because we come back and we run into those arms that never let us go. And God has done something incredible so that we can be set free from sin. You see, God paid the penalty with his own, own son on the cross. Sin is always destructive, pervasive, and destroys relationship and is full of excuses. But God decided to provide a way for the destruction of sin's power to be spent upon himself rather than us. God sent Jesus to die on a cross. And that punishment of sin was carried out on Jesus. And we all, oh, we need to believe this with all of who we are. That Jesus is indeed the son of God that died on the cross for our sins to atone for our sin and stretch across that chasm so that we can have intimacy with God. And when we do, we are set free from the guilt of sin and also from the punishment of sin. The promise is that if we repent and have faith, our sin is forgiven and we are set free. We are set free for joyful obedience, as we say time and time again, and that relationship is restored and holiness enters in and replaces sin. We're made new and we find God has relented, my friends, and we can be set free. We're forgiven. We are freed for new living and new life. My friends, I want to tell you this morning, you belong to God, nothing else. You belong to God as beloved sons and daughters. Let's take some time right now, and I want to lead us in a, a time of prayer. So if you, however you want to posture yourself, um, if you want to get down on a knee or, or if you want to uh, turn and make your seat a, a place like an altar rail or, or if you desire just to close your eyes or to uh, lift up your hands, I want to take us through a time of repentance. God, we are so sorry and sorrowful for the ways in which we have gone against your will, the ways in which we have missed the mark. God, may we see the deep impact of the sin and how that sin has distanced our lives from you. You are a living God who desires to fill us, living people, with new life and cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that we can experience that gateway into freedom. Freedom to where we can live in you. And experience just the intimacy not only with you but with each other and with ourselves. God, shame and guilt. Deception doesn't belong in our lives. So dear Lord, come and meet us right now in this time. And hear our heartfelt confession to you, O oh God, right now.
Beloved, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so that you have been separated from your sin. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful. God is faithful. God is just and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I want to proclaim that again. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And as the band comes forward, we're going to take some time to continue in worship. And, and just uh, during this song, just give your life over completely to the one who has saved you, who has redeemed you, and who can restore you completely. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.